0: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This isn't your average business
1: podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show.
0: Today on the James Altucher Show... Welcome to part two. Part one was also available today. And in part one, uh, we talked about what are all the uses for Bitcoin? Why Bitcoin? And in part two, we talk about DeFi, NFTs, Securitized tokens, all the business models on top of crypto. But perhaps most importantly, what are the next milestones that are going to drive crypto higher? Here we go. what I want to start talking about is these new, I'll say relatively new uses of crypto, which are amazing. So whereas Bitcoin was designed to potentially replace currency, which is there's, let's say $40 trillion worth of currency around the world. This new thing, DeFi tokens are, there's, it, it is intended to replace wall street and banking. So there's 1.3 quadrillion, derivatives and investments and so on throughout the world. So it could be a much larger market. A lot of these are a lot of these DeFi cryptocurrencies are built on top of a currency like Ethereum, but there's also like you mentioned Solano, Polkadot, Cardano. Um but let's talk about DeFi in general. So and again decentralized finance, what that means is instead of me calling up my bank and then say, hey, where's the brokerage firm? I want to buy some Apple stock, they he calls the stock exchange they trade a little on the stock exchange. There's market makers and dark pools and so on in the middle. There's fees every step of the way. There's possibility of human error every step of the way, uh, and so on. Decentralized finance allows these transactions theoretically to happen much more seamlessly, more quickly, no chance of fraud and no extra layers of fees. It happens right away, 24 hours a day and on and on and on. There's all these huge benefits. And so this is just beginning. So, and it's very complicated, a lot of it. So I don't want to explain everything, but. What do what do you see happening in in that space?
1: So I think that there's a couple of uh, views that I have of this that's probably different than uh, uh, than some others. So one is I think you have to start every conversation of decentralized finance with the recognition that Bitcoin was uh, the creator of this entire decentralized finance space, right? It's decentralized money, and the reason why I say that is because most people when they hear DeFi they immediately jump to the financial services, lending, exchanges, etc. But we have to remember finance is made up of uh, uh, stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, plus then all of the financial services on top of it. And so we kind of build from that base of, first, you got to get the assets of stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. And then you go and you get the financial services that allow you to interact with or trade those assets. That gives you kind of a, a total mm. view of, of finance. Good point. So when you come to de- uh, the decentralized finance world, What we need is we need decentralized assets right so bitcoin being a decentralized currency and then eventually we're going to need the other things uh and then you're going to need the decentralized financial services now when people say decentralized financial services specifically so forget the assets for a second the decentralized financial services what i always go back to is what are we really talking about like let's zoom out get out of kind of the the bitcoin to the crypto world we're just talking about automation if you remove middlemen you're going to use software to automate these transactions so a simple smart contract simply says okay uh james is going to send me the deed to his home and i'm going to send him money in exchange for it and in the legacy world when we go to make that transaction i literally take the money i put it in escrow you take the deed you basically put that in escrow then the escrow agent like switches and we all have like a third party we have lawyers we have paper contracts like We have all these different components all to allow you and I to do a transaction where we trust each other. And then you and I both have to trust each other in the transaction by using these intermediaries. But then we also have to trust that the intermediaries are going to do what they say they're going to do. And there's obviously law and punishment and and kind of all this stuff that, that reinforces that system. Well, what we're talking about here is literally just using software to now replace all that nonsense. You and I enter into a smart contract and the code executes for us. And the code executes in an automatic fashion that allows for you to give me the asset that I want and me to give you the money that you want. And so if you really think about that from kind of a first principle standpoint, it's just automation. That's all this is. Now, is it decentralized? Is it centralized? What assets? What financial services? Who builds them? Who owns them? What's the regulatory regime? Like, You can very quickly get into the weeds, but if you think about it just as automated finance. I'm very hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't believe the finance industry is going to become more automated over time.
0: By the way, a simple example you use one is real estate, but also a will could be built into a smart contract, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or one of these DeFi tokens, I can make a will. And it's not like I, you don't, again, you don't really need a lawyer. You don't need a judge to approve it you don't, nobody can sue later and say, oh, he was mentally unstable. And he wrote that like, it just is what it is. You can't, you can't break the, it's a smart contract. You can't break it. So it's going, it's going to happen whether you were mentally unstable or not.
1: It, it, it's an if then statement. And and I think part of what we have to remember is go back again to the legacy world, right? Stock traders, humans used to literally bid and ask open outcry method on the stock exchange floor. They have all for the most part been replaced by computers that execute software that look at, if this happens, then take this trading action at its most basic form. And so in some crazy way, the quote unquote smart contract, which is a terminology that was uh, uh, kind of popularized by Nick Szabo, is already in place in the legacy finance world. We don't call them smart contracts, but we do think of it as high frequency trading has replaced the human. And so now what we're watching is the proliferation of that across the rest of the finance industry. Now, there's a ton of debate, even to the level of controversy around what platform does it happen on, what are the assets, who owns it, regulatory regime, et cetera. I tend to almost think that all of those individual details, if you're an investor, will make a good investment great. But as long as you're allocated to the right industry and you're smart about the way that you allocate in terms of buying infrastructure and taking more of kind of a broad-based view you're much, much more likely to end up being successful than being completely outside of the industry, right? Good market, or a good team meets bad market, market wins. Bad team meets good market, market wins. And so ultimately what you're doing here doing market selection. And if you can wrap your head around the idea that uh, all of this automation is coming to the world, then you've kind of checked the first box. The second thing and most important part of this analysis, in my opinion, is in order to get automation, You have to have the assets be digitized. So if I wanted to, let's say, use physical cash, the analog asset, in the current financial world, it's really hard. I can't mail dollars to the stock market. I can't mail dollars, for the most part, in any size to do a transaction. I have to use electronic QSIP money. So analog dollars don't fit in the legacy system. What we now are watching is that the electronic QCIP dollars do not fit into this new digital financial system that's being built it's like trying to take a a cassette tape and put it into a cd-rom player or try to take a cd-rom and put it into itunes it doesn't work right it's incompatible technology
0: yeah how does digital fiat currency not work in the new system
1: well so what we have right now is not digital fiat currency we have electronic cuset dollars Electronic QSIP dollars are simple files that are held in centralized databases that actually are only settled up at the end of every day or you know, every other day. So what ends up happening is you have to upgrade the technology to actually be truly digital. So if you look at something like a USDC, right, which is a stablecoin, USDC cannot actually be integrated in its current form into the legacy payment systems. Why? They have to build technology for the new digital payment rails. But those legacy payment systems also cannot take their electronic CUSIP dollars and send them through the USDC rails either. So it's just like taking physical dollars can't operate in electronic world. The electronic dollars can't operate in this truly digital world where you have these kind of open systems. And so what I think we're watching play out here is not only – bitcoin in terms of being built as this decentralized digital currency but also people are waking up to wait a minute there's this whole automation that is coming and it's because now the assets are going to be uh digitized truly digital not electronic cusif which is a representation of the asset but they're actually going to be digital and so does that happen on bitcoin as kind of a layer two layer three maybe does that happen somewhere else maybe that's what the market's going to decide But I think my big focus and and what I try to get through to people is we're talking about automation, and that automation is now possible because we have digital assets, truly digital bearer assets. And then two is we have the ability to now, uh, in a very significant way, write smart contracts that are going to automate a lot of this. And what we've seen is smart contracts were pioneered uh, in its kind of current form in this crypto world on Ethereum. It's now spread kind of uh, out on that uh, long tail to all these other smart contract platforms. But also now we're starting to see smart contracts on Bitcoin as well. And so ultimately what I think is a very unpopular opinion, we're going to end up seeing a lot of feature parity across these platforms. And so what I get most excited about is, well, if we have feature parity, if we have assets that can be automated, if we have assets that can be digital, if we have smart contracts on a bunch of different platforms, well, I actually think one of the most important differentiators is who's actually decentralized and who's not. And that's where I spend a majority of my time on Bitcoin and Bitcoin alone is because what I found is that Bitcoin is actually the only one that is truly decentralized and continues to have an economic incentive to become more and more decentralized, where I think a lot of the other ones are going to become centralized. Centralization is not bad. It's just different. And so I think that what you're seeing is that bifurcation around one pursuing decentralization, other things pursuing efficiency.
0: I like this idea, though. Of I haven't really thought of it as automation, but you're really correct that we're replacing legacy systems, which is is bogged down by non-automation. You know, there's people involved. There's potential for error. There's all sorts of steps involved. And we're automating that and crypto in general, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, it's kind of the platform for automating it. There's one more step in that, which is that it's also you standardizing all of these things so that they could be traded with each other. So I could have a token that helps me automate, you know, let's say cloud storage and I could trade it for a token that helps me trade stocks. Like there's this interesting layer on top of it, which allows every It turns, it turns automation into an asset. And I find that to be very interesting. So for instance, I could create a cryptocurrency out of my house. If I own a house, I could say, okay, I'm going to create a cryptocurrency that it represents 10% ownership of my house. And I could start selling it to people. And so anybody who has a token has a smart contract, which says they own a tiny piece of my house, but they can now trade this for someone who tokenizes, I don't know, their, their future royalty earnings on their music albums. So there, there's, there's not only automation, but this tokenization aspect creates an infinite number of business models.
1: Yeah, I, I think that ultimately what we're going to watch is we're going to watch the automation of all industries. And what it ends, ends up being is it's going to come back to what industries need to be decentralized, what industries don't need to be decentralized. And what the world is going to rediscover is that majority of industries don't need to be decentralized. Right, like If you really think about what is the importance of decentralization, well, it's really just about security. And so if you can get automation and get efficiency with a centralized system, I actually think most people are going to choose to have a centralized, efficient, automated system.
0: What do you think industry will be like that?
1: Look look at what we're watching with NFTs right now. I think that there's going to be multiple variations of NFTs. The initial version of just taking art and making it digital. For the most part, there's very few examples I can think of where you need to have decentralized infrastructure for art, right? And so what ends up happening is if you actually can get lower fees, higher throughput, and you can become a more efficient system by simply taking the idea of art and putting it into the the digital realm, and people know that that's actually the original, and there's trusted parties that do it, I think people are going to be fine with that. And you see that with, let's say, uh, developers moving from Ethereum to Binance Smart Chain to build. There's a bunch of developers, they don't care about decentralization. They just want the lowest uh, fees and they want the highest throughput. That's not everybody, but that is a big portion of people, a bigger portion than I think the market is assigning.
0: So, but it's it's interesting though, like I didn't know much about NFTs and I've recently done a deep dive into it. There's all these aspects of NFTs beyond the the art world. Like, I feel like the art world is ultimately going to be a small application for, for NFTs. And, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think of an NFT almost like a ticket. So it, you know, a good NFT now is not just artwork, but maybe it unleashes some utility for me once I buy it. So I not only have the art, but in a very simple case, I can have a conversation with the original artist or, you know, the New York Knicks. Could sell an NFT of their tickets. And that's the only way to have tickets. And this way that avoids scalpers or, you know, whatever, or forged tickets or whatever. So it seems like it could start moving, you know, definitely trustworthiness is important. And I don't know if centralization is important. I never really understand that, but this automated aspect is becomes important. And yes, speed and efficiency becomes important. But but what what's attracting to you you to NFTs beyond art?
1: Uh, to me, I think that the the whole idea of uh, all of this stuff is the alignment of economic incentives. So I'll give you a perfect example. Let's say that a professional sports team says to themselves, we sell tickets and we make money on the primary sale. I sold uh, James a $100 ticket and I make 100 bucks when I do that. James then turns around and he sells it to somebody for $200 as, a, as kind of a secondary market transaction. And then that person then sells it for $500. So now there has been a total $100 primary sale plus $700 of uh, secondary sale. So $800 total. I only made $100 off of that though. So what if all of a sudden now, every time that this ticket trades hands in the secondary market, I actually get a piece of it. Yeah,
0: it's incredibly valuable.
1: That'd be pretty cool. Right? Now, do I need it to be decentralized? Probably not. Right, and, and there may be a lot of reasons why I actually don't want it to be decentralized. I want to make sure I have control, that I can make sure that I'm still getting paid, like all these different things. And so I think that's a good example where uh, people are realizing that there's technology that is now available to more uh, align economic incentive because now the team's going to encourage the secondary market. Historically, they've been against the secondary market. They don't like it. They can't make money off of it. Yeah. But now if they can make money, they actually want you to flip that ticket as many times as possible because they're making money on every transaction. But I think that, again, it goes back to this idea of when do we need decentralization and when do we not? For sure, the market has decided that for a digital decentralized uh, global currency, decentralization is the most important thing. Bitcoin a trillion-dollar asset. I think it's very hard to argue against. What I think the market is trying to figure out on all this other stuff is like, where else do we need it? And if we do need decentralization for another use case, do we build it on top of the most decentralized layer one, Bitcoin? Or do we go build it somewhere else and i think that everyone has their own opinion as that as you kind of think through that problem but ultimately the market's going to decide it doesn't matter what my personal opinion is or anybody else's the market's going to decide the things that need decentralization or is it going to be built on top of bitcoin or does it get built somewhere
0: else i would argue the ideal would be decentralization combined with efficiency and low fees because look at your experience with youtube you don't want any one centralized, like look at media in general. Nobody wants one centralized source to control their ability to spread their message. So decentralization in that case is important. Or if I make a will, for instance, on top of a smart contract, I don't want a centralized authority to have a system of judges to say my will is not valid. So decentralization is important there. Like I can't think of too many things where yes, I'll sacrifice decentralization for speed and low fees, but if I can have all three, that's pretty cool. I'd rather have, that i can't think of any industry really where i, I wouldn't want that
1: I, I absolutely agree that there is uh, a desire to have all three i think the big question is just is it actually possible right is it possible to get something that's decentralized and efficient what we're watching is and, and I, I think that it is possible something like the lightning network right which to me is one of the most innovative uh pieces of technology in the world right now If you look at what the Lightning Network has done is it has figured out a way to have complete efficiency, super fast final settlement of actual value done for essentially zero. So instantaneous payments done for zero, but it is built on top of the layer one security of Bitcoin. So you get decentralized security plus you get on layer two scalability around the throughput and the fees. And so I think now what we're watching is these other platforms are trying to copy that idea of scaling on the layer twos. Some of them will be successful, some of them won't. But ultimately, I think that's where you get the kind of uh, integration, right? Or or you get kind of all three is you can get different layers where you get different value propositions and then you have them vertically integrated. And so you as the end user using a layer two, you're getting efficiency of layer two and scalability of layer two, but you're using layer one security uh, at the same time. And that's kind of the holy grail uh historically is how do you accomplish that and that again goes back to this idea that this is a computer science breakthrough right it's 40 years of work that went into actually being able to solve these problems and now we've exploded into a multi trillion dollar market because of those breakthroughs
0: at least that's good the ups store be unstoppable most locations are independently owned product services pricing and hours of operation may vary see center for details come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time nfts are the latest hot thing being talked about in the in the crypto space but there's all there's something that's much more fascinating to me which nfts sort of touch on DeFi sort of touches on smart contracts touch on which is securitized tokens this, I I think this is going to create a million different business models. The idea that I can essentially tokenize an asset, create a cryptocurrency that's backed by an asset for instance, like a cryptocurrency that represents gold, for instance, and that itself could be sold into the crypto market or like one idea. I don't know why nobody's done yet. Let's say I just graduated college. I have $200,000 in student loan debt. I want to sell off 10% of my earnings for the next 10 years the best way to do that is with the, the the concepts and ideas behind Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, because then not only is it uh secure and there's a, a contract, it's legal, it's a contract around it. But if I'm, if I don't want, if I, if I get tired of James's potential for future earnings, I could sell that and buy the crypto for Anthony's, potential for future earnings. And I could, use, you know, college students could use this to pay down their student loan debt. They can offer 10% of their future earnings and boom, it's pay down their debt with it instead of borrowing more money. Why aren't more people, this seems to me like the biggest potential future business models in the crypto space. Yeah, look,
1: I think a lot of people are going to go try it, right? And, and, and frankly, I think that um, it's kind of like the late 90s where if you go back to the late 90s and you really look at a lot of those ideas, they were all right. There was everything from food delivery to music, streaming, et cetera. But we really didn't see them kind of come to fruition until a decade later uh, when those ended up being kind of these massive Internet companies, right? And the ones that so far have proven to be sustainable and durable, et cetera. Now, is that going to happen again here? I tend to think it's not going to be just the first one uh, that figures out how to do some of that, it may take a couple of attempts and people need to learn from each other and, and uh, users need to be ready to use that stuff, right? One of the big things is I talk a lot about like decentralized social media. Everyone wants to talk about decentralized social media right now around censorship, and deplatforming, et cetera. How many users are going to leave YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook for decentralized YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook? Zero. Nobody's leaving because it's just decentralized. Instead, what you got to do is you got to build a 10x better product. It's got to have a better user experience. It's got to have a better network effect. It's got to have something that those other platforms don't have. And oh, by the way, it just happens to be decentralized. But if you lead with decentralization as the value prop, I just don't think people care about that, right,
0: in terms of the mainstream. That's, that's really interesting because I guess you can create a network effect if, me, if content creators are to some extent miners also. So that the act of creating popular content also, uh, somehow it's like proof of content mining that uh, generates more of the tokens of that social media.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, there's a million different applications for this. I think the, the takeaway is just that, uh, as you enter this new world, you can't simply say, let me take the old model and apply it with this new technology. So for example, uh, You couldn't say, you know what we're gonna do to disrupt the taxi industry? We're now gonna allow you to send us a message on your smartphone, and then we're gonna have a taxi come and get you. But that wouldn't have made much sense. It wouldn't have been very disruptive. Instead, the smartphones came with GPS, and Uber was possible, and somebody figured out how to disrupt the legacy system. Same thing with online publishing. When the internet came along, there was a bunch of newspapers like, oh my God, this is amazing let's take our newspaper, let's create a copy of it at a copy machine. And then we're gonna literally put like the PDF of the image up on a URL. And now anyone in the world can go and they can read the newspaper, like it's amazing. But actually 90% of the value was the ability to test headlines, to have multiple people work on an article, to put multimedia in it, be able to edit in real time and kind of add to the story, the ability to distribute it differently, uh, all these different things. And so what you have to understand is like, what does this technology unlock that previously was not possible? And then if you can leverage that new thing, that's usually what ultimately leads
0: to the disruption. Well, look at NFTs as an example, like the fact that a basketball team can sell tickets and then get royalties and when they're sold and resold and resold, that's a new technology that is not possible with paper tickets.
1: Correct. I I think that that is a good example. And I think that there's going to be people who, you know, again, this is a market, right? So you're going to have millions of people around the world figuring out all kinds of crazy stuff. And frankly, 95% of it probably is worthless. Uh, Maybe 99, maybe 99.9% of what's tried is worthless. But that's how you get innovation is all these people keep experimenting, experimenting, experimenting. And then ultimately, the things that work is copied by everyone. And that's where you end up getting uh, value, right? If you look again, Let's say that Uber was uh, one of, maybe not the first, but one of the first to use the GPS in the smartphone. How many apps now use the GPS in the smartphone? Hundreds, thousands, millions? Yeah, you know, Just everybody, right? And, and so when you think about that, it's really uh, the experimentation almost leads to like a breakthrough or a discovery. And then once everyone agrees, oh, dang, that, that's valuable – it then immediately is copied by people across industries uh, and used. And I think that's what, kind of where we're watching right now.
0: So, what's next to unlock more value in in Bitcoin? What do you see happening? El Salvador is the first country to really formally accept uh, Bitcoin. This was a big milestone. What are, what is a mile? You know, Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy became the first public company to make massive uh, uh, crypto purchases for their for their cash reserves. Uh, so that was a big milestone. If 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 all of the for, Fortune 500 did that, crypto would probably be 200,000 already. So that's the beginning. What are some other milestones you see probably were most likely happening uh, if you were to guess that we'll and, and as goes Bitcoin, so goes the crypto world. Like everything will follow. Yeah, I think that
1: for Bitcoin specifically, there's probably four or five. One, you're going to get uh, more adoption of what I call the institutional cohort. So you had retail or individual cohort first. Now, you've got the institutional cohort showing up. That is uh, companies, both public and private, continuing to adopt the asset as part of their treasury. You also have uh, companies using it as a way to pay their employees. Uh, and then you have the financial institutions, whether they're directly investing or they're empowering their customers and users to invest as well. So you'll get deeper penetration in that institutional cohort. The second thing you're going to get is you're going to get the uh, state or the country cohort to start to adopt this as well. We already have one country that's made a legal tender. I think there will be many more over the next you know, kind of 18 to 24 months that follow. Uh, and so you'll start to get that penetration. That can include everything from buying it and putting it on their balance sheet paying their employees from a government standpoint in Bitcoin, uh, being able to accept it for taxes and fees, uh, also trying to get in the hands of their citizens, right? There's all these different things, using it as a settlement for uh, bilateral trade with other countries, et cetera. And so you'll get penetration in the institutional cohort. You'll get penetration in the country cohort. I think the third thing is you're going to continue to see this uh, become more pervasive culturally which is really, really important. So you're going to see more and more athletes and musicians and and folks who have large audiences pay me in Bitcoin, talking about Bitcoin, participating in Bitcoin, etc., which continues, again, from a psychological standpoint, uh, familiarizing people with it and kind of moving it from this asset that uh, people still think is like on the dark web or something and moves it more into the mainstream. And then the fourth thing, and probably the thing that I think is the most interesting is that you're gonna to start to see mainstream adoption of the payment rails of Bitcoin. So Twitter recently just started to allow people now, anyone with an iOS device on Twitter, I can send you money across Twitter. And the way that that works is I send dollars, but they're actually using the Bitcoin payment rails. So right now I can go on Twitter, I can send you 20 US dollars, but my US dollars are turned into Bitcoin, it's sent across the Lightning Network, it's turned back from Bitcoin into dollars and then deposited into your account. And Why do so they do you it
0: that way? because
1: it ends up being instantaneous settlement and it's completely for free. So the second that now all of a sudden you drop the fees and you increase the speed, again, you get that efficiency, that scalability, now you're able to do this anywhere in the world to anyone, it becomes a superior payment system, right? If I wanna send you right now one penny, I can't send you one penny on other systems. I can only send it to you through the Bitcoin system. And the reason is because if I try to wire you a penny, the bank will tell me I'm not allowed to do it. I can't wire a penny from Western Union. Now, many people say, well, why do you have to do a penny, right? But ultimately, what, the reason why you got to do a penny is because there's all sorts of micropayments that we may want to do. You only want to pay one penny to read an article, or maybe I want to stream money to you. Every second, I'm going to send you a penny for doing some activity, right? You, When you reduce that barrier, it now becomes possible. But Visa, MasterCard, Stripe, all these guys, they can't process those transactions. Their entire business model is based on charging a fee. And that fee ends up being too much to allow for a penny transaction. But now with Bitcoin, you can actually do it. And that's where it becomes really,
0: really interesting. You know, it's fascinating that, you know, t- essentially it's Twitter's allowing people to tip people who create valuable content. And what's fascinating about that is, uh, A, it's never been done before, but often the people who monetize U- YouTube say, are. are Like you already have 250,000 subscribers. So if you make a video and it gets a million views, you, you have, you know, you're already set up to accept payment. But if somebody has no YouTube subscribers, but they make a video that gets a million views, they're not set up via YouTube probably to accept payments. They don't make any money on that. So if users are in control of who makes the money by tipping, then that's, uh, uh, this is like a brand new business model for content creators. And it's, it's a great thing that Twitter is starting it off.
1: I completely agree, and I think it's kudos to Jack Dorsey, and the rest of the team there, also uh, to Strike, a company I'm invested in, uh, Jack Maulers. All these folks across those two companies and many other companies in the industry are all trying to push this forward, and ultimately what they're trying to do is they're trying to drive the cost and the friction of transacting a very small amount of value as close to zero as possible.
0: Well, Anthony, this is great. You're like the king of crypto content right now, and I should mention also the Pompliano family is the first family of, of newsletter writing. So Joe Pompliano, who was the author of the great newsletter, huddle up about the, the intersection of finance and sports. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. Your wife, Polina writes a great newsletter, uh, the profile, and she's coming on the podcast. I, I read her newsletter every day. In fact, you three, you're the three newsletters I read every day. <laughs> you, you know, yours, Joe's, and I'm not even interested in sports, but I love his his stories about sports and uh, Polina always has great, uh, uh, profiles of of people from every industry all over history. I, I love her newsletter. So congr- do you guys just sit around the Thanksgiving table talk, talking about the <laughs> newsletter business? The, I, I wish that
1: we did, but we don't. Uh, it, it's one of these things. I mean, you know, look, you, you built a, a very large one yourself. Uh, I spent a lot of time writing a, a ton. And it, I, I do think that there is um, there's value in being able to clearly write, because if you can clearly write, that means you can clearly think right? Yeah. And and that ultimately ends up uh, being a skill set that what's the best way to develop uh, clear thinking, clear writing is to do it. And so we just get more shots on goal on a weekly or monthly basis than most people. And so, you know, it's proven to be a pretty valuable, um, you know, kind of experience, but uh, we'll, we'll keep doing it until one day we'll probably wake up and just say, okay, we're done. This wasn't a, you know, we're not having fun anymore and uh, see you guys.
0: <laughs> Have you considered other crypto style businesses like doing a it seems like everybody, it seems like they're handing out crypto hedge funds at the airport. Like what's, have you thought about doing one of those? I I do a lot of investing, but no
1: trading. So no, uh, no hedge funds for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Good. Good for you. So thanks again, Anthony. I hope you come on again and you're always a welcome guest. If you have anything you want to, you want to share. And, uh, uh, I will say in the intro and outros, how to find your newsletter, but everybody should read it. It's really valuable. And, if you're serious at all, or if you put even a single dollar into, into Bitcoin or any crypto, you got to read Anthony's Anthony Poppliano's newsletter. So uh, the Pomp Letter, I should say it's called. Uh, so thanks a lot, Anthony. It's great.
1: Absolutely. Well, I love the podcast. So thanks
0: so much for having me. No problem.
1: that it's the call of the crave and when the crave calls you know what to do try the five dollar bacon bundle because the only thing better than a white castle slider is a white castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon so pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider 1921 bacon cheese slider or chicken bacon ranch slider and also get a small fry for just five dollars with the five dollar bacon bundle white castle follow your crave